1838, Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs issued Missouri Executive Order 44, which said, quote, The Mormons must be treated as enemies and exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for the public peace. Six years later, a mob in Illinois murdered Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. The Mormons were left a leaderless, despised community scattered in settlements across the Midwest. Now, they could easily have ended up as a footnote in 19th century religious history alongside countless other short-lived sects that tried to set their hand at living their understanding of Christianity before being ground down by the homogenizing force of American expansion. Instead, now, in 2010, there are well over 14 million Mormons worldwide, and those numbers include captains of industry and political leaders, cultural influencers, one of whom gained 48% of the popular vote in the 2012 presidential election. How did this amazing transformation happen? How did the Mormons go from a highly stigmatized sect on the American periphery to one of the most all-American of religious traditions? Well, they did it first by fleeing to the West to escape the persecution and assimilationist demands of the American state. And then when that state finally caught up with them by doing their best to perfect what America was trying to do, the self-conscious creation of a religious, cultural, and political entity that could assimilate America's market forces on their own terms. So after Joseph Smith was killed, the Mormons were thrown into, obviously, uh, a shocked and horrified sense of confusion. How would they go on? Uh, Who, in fact, was in charge? Was this going to be a hereditary monarchy? Uh, uh, would the blood of, of uh, the prophet have to course in the veins of anyone who would claim leadership? Would people just go their separate ways? Would they assume that this was a sign that the church was wrong? Was this proof that the prophecy had failed? Was this a sign from God to find another uh, brand of Christianity? Before things could get out of hand, though, one man, Brigham Young, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, which was sort of the executive council of Mormonism at that time, seized the moment. Uh, Brigham Young was an uh, early convert to Mormonism and, like Joseph Smith, was uh, a religious seeker from the burned-over district of upstate New York. And from his position within within the Quorum, he, he affirmed the authority of the Quorum and was able to gain enough supporters in, uh, amongst the influential members of the church to assert a new course of action. The Mormons would get the fuck out of Dodge. The Mormons would no longer have to deal with neighbors uh, on their periphery in American states and territories uh, just begging for a chance to fucking kill them. Instead, they would head west to the Salt Lake Valley, which at that time was the northernmost point of the uh, Republic of Mexico. The Mormon... Uh, Solution to uh, captivity in Egypt would be a flight as the Hebrews had had uh, into the wilderness. Brigham Young said at the time, quote, I am he who led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, and my arm is stretched out to save my people Israel. The Mormons would save themselves, would uh, prevent their souls from being uh, pulled back into the matrix of 
antebellum American uh, market culture, which was in the process of tearing everybody from the land and all other verities and throwing them into a new, uh, a new modern world. And instead of allowing that to happen to them, the Mormons would find land where they could set their own country, essentially, to create a sovereignty where the prophet's words would serve as the basis for this civilization, where instead of just going where the money is, uh, as uh, people in America were doing, they would work together to create Zion on earth. And they self-consciously uh, modeled themselves on bi the biblical uh, Hebrews uh, and uh, whether consciously or on, sought to become the Jews of the American continent. Uh, this is around the time that Brigham Young starts referring to non-Mormons as Gentiles in a self-conscious mimicry of the relationship between uh, biblical Jews and, and non-believers. So, over 3,000 families comprising over 16,000 people who lived in the Mormon settlements in Missouri and Illinois and Ohio started selling all their property in order to buy the supplies necessary to make a long westward journey. And the first wagon trains left Nauvoo, Illinois, on February 4th, 1846. And this trek west becomes a, the, a fundamental uh, element of Mormon self-mythology, uh, of, of their, their foundation myth. The, the creation of the Camp of Zion, uh, the, the trek to the winter quarters in Nebraska, and the final settling uh, on the banks of the Salt Lake, of the Great Salt Lake. And this is, this is in miniature, the uh, story of the American westward expansion, of course, because it's the Mormons, it's happening earlier than it was for most Americans, who once again were following the money. You'd had by this point very little westward expansion uh, of the, of, into America's territories. At this time, uh, most Americans were still slugging it out in the, uh, in the lands east of the Mississippi. Here you see the Mormons leave, uh, setting out two years before, or three years before the first large-scale westward internal migration occurs to California with the gold rush. Once again, following the money. Uh, the Mormons believed that they were following God, and so they carried out their own Oregon Trail uh, before that became a defining American experience. But by the time the Mormons, having faced numerous travails on the way, finally got to Salt Lake Valley. Uh, it had been ceded to the United States as part of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, ending the Mexican-American War. So that means that the states that they had tried to fled were waiting for them, basically. Uh, and Young made accommodations with the federal authorities because the federal authorities at this point had a vested interest in seeing people fill these newly acquired areas. And so there was uh, some subsidy to, uh, from the U.S. to the Mormon mission. But, of course, it was accepted reluctantly. There was a lot of friction. Uh, and But in 1850, the uh, Utah was turned into a U.S. territory as part of the, as part of the Compromise of 1850. And... 
Brigham Young was appointed the territorial governor. So Young sets about trying to establish a Zion in uh, Zion in the, in the in the salt flats, and he sends missionaries uh, across the country and to Europe, where they'd had success recruiting, uh, making a call to a gathering at Zion. Uh, the idea that all Mormons everywhere should make their way to Utah so that they could build a country uh, in the wilderness. Of course, there are plenty of natives there who the Mormons make uh, half-hearted attempts to convert. And remember, according to Mormon doctrine, the Native Americans were Lamanites who were the descendants of those who had uh, fought, who had fought amongst each other in the uh, narrative of the Book of Mormon. And it was Mormon policy to try to bring them back to righteousness. But obviously they were doing that while taking land, so it made things sort of awkward and their attempts never really made to much. But they did have a free freedom to w- live their own way that they had never been able to really achieve in the United uh, when they'd been in the United States, in Ohio and Illinois and, and in Missouri where they had clashed against existing American structures of power. Uh, Here they were able to build them from scratch. They laid out Salt Lake City in a perfectly rationalized grid pattern around a central temple mound. They sent settlers out to to claim land across the West. Uh, They've settled most of the major uh, towns and cities of Utah, but they also settled cities as far away as Las Vegas, Nevada, and San Bernardino, California. And they even applied uh, planning to uh, the settling layout. Uh, Welsh immigrants who came to uh, Salt Lake were sent to the southwest corner, which had uh, iron ore deposits, which they were hoping to mine. Uh, Southern American converts came and were sent to the southeast of the state to grow cotton. That part of Utah is still to this name, to this day, called Dixie. The Mormons pooled money to create a perpetual emigration fund to pay for people to be able to come to Utah and build a country. Uh, the, so the later, because people kept coming, the, the wagon trains kept coming, but the second and third wave of Mormon Immigrants to Utah were generally the poorest uh, European migrants, people who from England, say, uh, who had come to the United States with not much and were only able to access a small amount of a subsidy. Uh, and they were told to not bother with expensive oxen when they were buying supplies, but to buy hand carts and walk the whole way, dragging the carts, which thousands of them amazingly did. And that the hand cart is to this day a a powerful symbol of uh, of Mormon uh, resiliency and and commitment that people literally drag their possessions behind them like draw, draft animals in order to build Zion in Utah. And this was a real project. Young and the Mormon leadership had a vision of a cooperative system of economy to reflect the. Uh, religious solidarity of the Mormons. They did not have to live as strangers the way that the Gentiles did, the way those who had fallen away from the word of God had to. They were all in the brotherhood and sisterhood of believers, which means that they did not need 
the market. And so there was a concerted effort early on uh, in the first couple of uh, decades, especially, of uh, the Mormon settlement of Utah, where there was the church attempted to create uh, organs of cooperative economy, uh, collectively owned manufactories, land, uh, an attempt to suppress exchange, to suppress the creation of the market. Uh, at one point, Utah, uh, at one point, Brigham Young said, I would rather see every building and fence laid in ashes than to see a trader come in here with his goods. And to that end, they built, uh, they made an attempt to create a collective autarkic government. They didn't want to have to import anything. They didn't have to want to rely on having to export anything. They tried to create a fully self-sufficient internal economy uh, based around collective ownership. Uh, there was an attempt to enforce uh, what was known in the early days uh, of the settlements in Missouri and Illinois as consecration, where people who joined the church would give over all of their well their property to the church and collectively own it with other members of the church. It was never they were never able to enforce it, and most members never uh, never accepted it. But it was an option that was uh, socially emphasized. But most families were always more willing to just pay the ten percent tithe to the church that they were also uh, that was also an option available to them. So that made it difficult, but that didn't stop them from trying. Uh, in a small town, in one of the small settlements called Brigham City, they formed something called the Brigham City Cooperative Association, in which citizens would buy shares in order to collectively own things like uh, the general store, uh, all the livestock, uh, textile manufacturing, a dairy, schools. They had a thing called the, um, the Tramp Department that was to employ beggars. A number of other towns founded th- uh, local cooperative organizations called United Orders that tried to assert collective ownership and to set wages and to distribute food and shelter as equitably as possible. There was even one town, Orderville, that basic that completely abolished private property and had a barracks communism where people lived in dorms and ate in cafeterias. And these organs attempted to resist the mercantile trade that was taking root in the cities because, remember, they can't really keep out non-Mormons. So non-Mormons are moving into Utah as well. And are starting to trade and that trade is lucrative. Uh, and these attempts to create a cooperative economic order are always in competition with this growing mercantile uh, network. And they'll struggle with that until the 1870s when after the uh, transcontinental railroad comes in, the capitalism fully takes over and there's no way to compete with it. And what happens to the to Mormon cooperative living is the same thing that happened to all of uh, 19th century's many attempts at planned communities and utopian projects. Your Owenites, your your New Harmonies. They eventually were unable to compete with capitalism because there could be no long term coexistence between capitalism and cooperative forms of economy, uh, unless you have like a serious state power behind it. Uh, And in here, in an internal situation where you have 
a national market being established at this moment, no internal resistance is going to be on even a medium time frame viable. And so uh, by the 1870s, this strain of, uh, of utopian economics uh, in the Mormon settlements is eventually uh, replaced by the market. Now, of course, at the same time, Brigham Young is endorsing slavery uh, and promulgating a decree. Once again, Mormon prophets, especially at the top of the uh, pyramid, have the ability to claim prophetic powers that allow them to make ex-cathedra proclamations that then have the force of doctrine, uh, which is one way that, which is one of number of uh, places where Mormonism uh, is similar to the Catholic Church, uh, which makes sense because Mormonism really is an attempt to fuse the social structures of Catholicism with the dynamism of Protestantism. Uh, And it's the it's the destruction of one or the other that leads uh, Catholics in the cities to stagnate, but at the same time dooms Protestants to a alienating headlong rush away from one another into a brutal competition that destroys all Christian brotherhood. But anyway, this is to say that Brigham Young said, Hey, uh, by the way, I know there was some ambiguity early on. We had some uh, black guys and gals running around some of our camps saying that they had been, they'd been touched by prophecy as well. Uh, And yes, some of them might've been endorsed by Joseph Smith, but guess what? Uh, there is no, there no bishophood can be bestowed on a black person. Sorry, which is, in its own way, part of the Western process of establishing whites only uh, social relationships. Uh, you see it in all the Western states, uh, certainly in the Pacific Northwest and in Utah as well. And this is just uh, a religiously inflected part of that general trend to preserve. Uh, the Western frontier from the, more than anything, the competition of slave labor. So in these early days, while Young and his cadre are trying to impose this new religious orthodoxy and uh, social relationship onto their people and and struggle against the elements and, and scrape together the money to maintain viability, they're also having to do this as U.S. territories, which is an awkward tension, which is an awkward situation because they're trying to build a social structure outside of the American market with a theocratic social structure uh, and a collectivist economic order with, by the way, polygamy and a interpretations of the gospel radically alienating to every mainstream Protestant in the country. Uh, in the early in in this antebellum era, uh, West, Eastern reformers uh, had three great social horrors. The 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 northern bourgeois were terrified of three things: the slave power, the antichrist in Rome and his army of brainwashed papists, and Mormonism, which felt like sort of an Americanized Catholicism and was rendered even more alienating by the presence of polygamy. Here were people who were not taking orders from their own hearts, but people who were 
obeying a religious hierarchy, just like all of those slum-bound Irishmen list, cocking their heads to hear the Muzine call from St. Peter's. So there's a, uh, there is a revulsion to Mormonism. There's an attempt by the federal government to, to impose more federal authority on Utah, which leads to conflict between the church hierarchy and, for example, uh, territorial judges who are appointed and sent in by the government. Uh, and out of this, there is a decision by the Buchanan administration coming in just as the sectional crisis is reaching its boiling point and wanting more than anything to make people forget about it and change the subject, decided that he was going to take Mormonism, this thing which was repulsive to all good Americans, north or south of the Mason-Dixon, and rent, make it the, the monster that needed to be slain. Uh, that's one conservative attempt to, mis to redirect anti-slavery politics. Because remember I said there's three things that the northern voter broadly defined uh, was horrified by. Well, slave power could not be confronted by conservatives of both the Democratic and Whig parties, but Mormonism sure could. Now, the other one, papism, Buchanan as a Democrat could not uh, attack because too many Democratic votes depended on those urban machines made up of Catholics. It was up to the uh, silver-gray Whigs under Millard Fillmore to make papists uh, the villain to distract the northern populace from the slave power. And that's how you get the uh, rise of the know-nothings. But with Buchanan in and demonizing Catholicism out of the window as an option, there was this idea to pick a fight with the Mormons. And so as soon as he comes into office, Buchanan says that they're going to replace Brigham Young as territorial governor with a non-Mormon. And this was not possible. Uh, they, the Mormons at this point uh, are feeling themselves. They had shot it out with mobs in Missouri and Illinois. They had uh, runoff Indian attacks on their way out west. They had uh, dealt with assassination attempts against their leadership and, and fought off uh, bandits and rustlers on the frontier. They weren't about to give up their dream of creating their own uh, Zion in the wilderness. And so when Buchanan appoints a non-Mormon as governor of Utah and tells him to go and take office, Young refuses. And so Buchanan sends in troops uh, and, and threatens to install him into office as governor. Uh, and uh, at one point, uh, the, the troops are taken over by uh, later one of the Confederacy's most able commanders, Alfred Sidney Johnston. And it is in this context with U.S. troops making their way to Utah that the most infamous scandal in Mormon history occurs, the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And the Mountain Meadows Massacre was the systematic uh, cold-blooded execution of at least 120 members of an emigrant wagon train going through southern southwestern Utah the Baker Fancher wagon train. Now at this point, the Mormons in Utah are in a paranoid frenzy and terrified about what's going to happen and that they're going to be invaded at any moment. So there are a number of uh, bloody conflicts between settlers 
non-Mormon settlers in Utah and non-Mormon settlers moving through Utah that lead to deaths uh, and, and violence and escalates the sense of anxiety. And it's in here, in this context, when this wagon train uh, is decided by some local Mormons to be a spy uh, for the federal government. And, and so uh, a bunch of Mormons come together under the uh, leadership of a guy named John D. Lee, uh, and some of them dressed like uh, Indians interdict this wagon train. And after besieging it for five days, making a false offer of truce to the uh, pioneers and then systematically massacring them. Uh, the only people who were spared were children under the age of seven who, who it was thought wouldn't be able to tell anybody. Uh, and at the time there were, there was no one even uh, arrested. Later in the 1870s, Lee would be uh, arrested, convicted, and executed. According to Mormon history, official Mormon history, it was all a terrible misunderstanding. There was a breakdown of communication, and so people panicked and acted on their own volition. But John Lee and others assert that uh, high up members of the Church of Latter of the uh, Church of Latter Day Saints, up to and including Brigham Young, had awareness and possibly ordered it. Uh, it's never been established fully one way or the other, but it's certainly a black mark on the Mormon record. That's for sure. So the U.S. troops on the border just sort of sit there, and there is this prolonged standoff. Brigham Young declares martial law. Some Mormons from the Nauvoo Legion, which is a Danite militia raid a wagon train from the U.S. Army and burn 52 wagons. But the army does not invade. And eventually mediation occurs, but no deal can be made. Eventually, in March of 1858, Brigham Young evacuates Salt Lake City and hides uh, from the advancing U.S. troops. Buchanan proclaims Utah in rebellion. Uh, there is a military invasion of Utah, uh, and eventually Cummings is installed as governor, and a military, a permanent military fort, Fort Camp Floyd, is established in Utah, about 50 miles from Salt Lake City. And eventually, without options really, Young accedes to Cummings' installation and steps down as governor. The entire thing ends up being kind of a debacle for Buchanan, though. People start calling it Buchanan's blunder uh, because it never turns into the uh, dramatic confrontation uh, and domination that Buchanan was probably looking for. But it did uh, get rid of Mormon uh, domination in Utah politically. That was the end of the dream of a Mormon theocracy. Between Young's replacement by an appointee of the state and later after the Civil War, the establishment of the Transcontinental Railroad, the political and the economic sources of Mormon power would be eradicated. Uh, but thanks in part to something that Brigham Young was doing while this confrontation with the United States was happening, the religious leg of the stool, the religious solidarity would be much deeper. Because it's during the confrontation with Buchanan and the, and what became known later as the Utah War 
Brigham Young and his cadres are carrying out something that would later be called the Mormon Reformation, which is a program of spiritual revival uh, that goes throughout the Utah territories in which Young and the Quorum go around and in a speaking circuit, impelling their followers to renew their commitment to a spiritual life. And this leads to a huge increase in the building of meeting houses, uh, more active congregations, and it also affirms the structure of church governance that had been put in by Young and the Quorum once the Utah settlement had been established. And this is a system of what is co- no, what are known as stakes, which are territories that are uh, controlled by a, a bishop. Now, of course, everybody here is a lay person. There is no formal clergy. There are appointed laymen, and these appointed laymen uh, are, are organized hierarchically throughout these stakes. And during the Mormon Reformation, those stakes are strengthened. And the amount of time that people spend at their church on church business, building church uh, solidarity increases significantly. And that sense of being besieged by the, by the Gentiles certainly intensifies it. So, well, this is the period when Mormon uh, aspirations to sovereignty are uh, eradicated. The Mormon, Mormon church is solidified so that, well, yes, the Mormons were now at the mercy of Uncle Sam and would have to become subject to the market relationships of American political economy. They would be able to do so on their own terms. They would be able to do so as self-conscious members of a church whose social structure was such that it reinforced bonds instead of tore them apart. And that those reinforced social bonds could assimilate the American market and assimilate American politics towards the end of the community. But there's one big thing standing in the way of the church and this end, and that was polygamy. Now, polygamy had been crucial toward to the early church in that it provided a uh, matrimonial welfare state whereby single women could be brought under an umbrella of familial obligation. Uh, this is a, a proto-welfare state we're talking about. And that was very important in keeping the Mormon church together in those early awful years of privation and persecution. And also, in the sense Mormonism now, since it could no longer take power in America realistically, would have to assert itself through the strength of its social bonds, needed to define itself against an outside force. And there were... And, and the early church father's opinion was that the, fa- that the alienating effect of polygamy, the thing that made it repul- repellent to non-Mormons, was a feature and not a bug. It drew the bright line between Mormons and non-Mormons. And that had crucial usefulness. But as the U.S. state increases its authority in the post-war years, as the Yankee Leviathan that, was un- that it was awoken by the Civil War comes into its own as a regulatory force, the presence of this alien social custom in Victorian America became untenable uh, for the non-Mormons, for the Gentiles, for, for Caesar in Rome. Now, Mormons by the 1870s and 80s, uh, about 20 to 30% of families were 
practicing polygamy, which obviously that's not a majority even, but it is a significant chunk. And most importantly, as a male church member, the more likely you were to practice polygamy was the more likely you were to have a high level of a higher rank within the church hierarchy. And the higher up in the church hierarchy you were, the more wives you tended to have. And so polygamy was disproportionately gathered around power socially. So it was very deeply embedded by the moment that it really comes into confrontation with the American state. And that happens. And the real starting gun for this conflict is the Supreme Court decision of 1878, Reynolds versus U.S., that declares that there is no protection, that there is no First Amendment protection for bigamy. You, you cannot claim religious exemption to bigamy laws. And by 1882, Congress passed something called the Edmonds Anti-Polygamy Act, which explicitly outlawed polygamy uh, and empowered the government to root it out, which was just a bullseye put onto Utah by a bunch of Victorian blue bloods in Washington who were scandalized by the very concept because polygamy in the post-war era was one of those boogeymen, which had not really been slain by the civil war. Only the slave power had, but Mormonism and, and bigamy were still there along with the, with the papists, of course, but now joined by free blacks as another, as another nightmare other. So the Victorians were horrified by polygamy, but according to the Mormons, polygamy was vastly morally superior to the nuclear family emerging in Victorian America as the ideal because polygamy had that social welfare feature built into it that ensured women against the horrors of uh, the market, basically. Uh, According to the, the Mormons of this time, the Victorian family, which was supposed to be the uh, acme of civilization and uh, morality was the thing that created brothels and orphanages and that polygamy prevented those social evils from accumulating by preventing women from falling through the cracks. And this is, I think, uh, a good example of that keen social uh, awareness of those early Mormons that what they were running from really was the market that they had not, they could not, they had not accepted yet the uh, ideological blinders of American mainline Protestants who saw what happened because of people's individual failings as fate, as God's will, basically. But for the Mormons, the fact that you had women selling themselves on the street and children scrounging Uh, in the gutters was proof that uh, a system that left people outside of it, if they were not able to adhere, were not able to gain a perfect match one-on-one was immoral. And this reflected, this was reflected in the theology of the church, which saw heaven as a network of families, stacks and stacks of families, all hierarchically arranged. That's one of the reasons that they, Love baptizing dead people is to increase one's family network in heaven because the greater the network you have, the the farther you can see, the more, the more you're able to fulfill your godly potential. Uh, you can see why in the 20th, 21st century, Mormons are going to take two MLMs so easily. And so 
None of this is persuasive to the, the American government, of course, which starts sending marshals in to enforce bigamy laws in something that is known in Utah as the raid, a period of years when over a thousand Mormon men were con- tried and convicted of bigamy, uh, thousands more fled, some to Mexico, and it is a polygamist sect that fled to Mexico during the raid where George and Mitt Romney's family uh, came from. Now, and, and thousands more Mormons either renounced polygamy or publicly renounced it while privately continuing it. And this repression continued until an 1893 amnesty in which the, the Mormon church vowed to obey the Ed, Edmonds Act in exchange for an amnesty uh, of anyone who was still being sought. And it's this decision that uh, helps lead to Utah's acceptance in 1896 as a state and really allows fully for Mormons to try to uh, become Americans in their own terms. Now, the renunciation of polygamy, it should said, is not taken well by everyone. Uh, a large number of Mormons say that uh, the acceptance of Uncle Sam is not worth betraying their beliefs, even if uh, the prophet once again is able to say, hey, I had another revelation that said no more polygamy. And there were, this is when you see the creation of sects that would later become things like the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints uh, and create creepy polygamist compounds. I saw, I saw, I drove through Colorado City one time. Uh, everyone looked like children of the fucking corn. It was terrifying. All the houses were just gigantic uh, on small lots, but huge houses, all of them with plywood-covered extensions that hadn't even been finished yet. You could tell that those houses basically never stopped getting built. Uh, but so these, that's, this is when you see fundamentalist uh, Mormonism emerge, which is people who will not accept the rendering of Caesar, uh, their religious right to practice polygamy. But the mainstream church gives up polygamy and is brought into the U.S. And this, coincidentally, is the exact same moment that the frontier closes for American expansion. And so this is the moment where uh, America comes into its own as a fully defined being, and uh, Mormonism does too. This is the end of the frontier era of America and of the Mormon church and the beginning of the progressive era. Now, uh, early on in the Utah days, the Mormons basically focused on, obviously, the work of creating their theodemocracy. But the non-Mormon settlers had their own political agenda, and eventually they formed uh, the Liberal Party, which is an umbrella party for the non-Mormons of Utah. And the Mormons answered that by uh, founding the People's Party, uh, which dissolved in 1881. And after that, just as the statehood is uh, being promulgated, you see uh, the membership start to uh, settle along partisan lines, according to American politics, with rank-and-file Democrats, like most small farmers and mechanics of the West, voting Democrat, and the elite of the party, uh, like the elites everywhere in America, voting Republican, largely because they uh, were being schmoozed by D.C. Republicans looking to maintain uh, influence in Utah. And so this means that Eventually, you're going to have a Mormon in Congress, and that happens in eighteen or in 1903 when Reed Smoot—that's right, Reed Smoot, 
is elected as a Republican to the Senate by the legis- the state legislature of Utah. And so Reed Smoot will be the first Mormon in the Senate. And this, because sh- so short out, so shortly after the uh, Edmonds Act and the raids, scandalizes official Washington. And many members of Congress demand that Reed not be allowed to take his seat because Mormonism was in conflict with the principles of American democracy. The fear was is that, like a Catholic from the Pope, Smoot would take orders not from his conscience, as an American should, or the will of the people, but from the demands of the president of the church. And also, there was a assumption widespread that he was a fucking polygamist. Now, Smoot never was a polygamist, but come on. That was what Mormons were known for. This led to a series of hearings about Mormonism and about Reed Smoot's relationship to Mormonism that lasted from 1904 until until 1907. And it was a deliberation over whether Smoot would be allowed to take a seat. And this was new progressive Mormonism's coming out party for America. Moderate Mormons like Smoot got to make a case to the American people for their normalization, that they they learned their lesson and that they were normal. They loved democracy. They loved America, uh, that they were on board. And, of course, this is what you do to survive, obviously. Uh, and it worked. Uh, there was never any evidence produced that Smoot was a, poly- uh, was a polygamist. He answered questions about his uh, allegiances eloquently, and he eventually wins over the uh, the center of gravity of American public opinion and the and, and the Senate. One of his allies in the Senate who uh, endorsed his ascension to the seat, in reference to all of the obvious philanderers in the Senate, uh, said, "As for me, I would rather have seated beside me in this chamber a polygamist who doesn't polyg than a monogamist who doesn't monog." Boom, roasted. And around this exact same time, a new modernized and complete Mormon theology is being promulgated that uh, channels the progressive moment and reflects America's greater aspirations. So James Talmadge, a mining consultant, uh, during this period in the early aughts, is going around with a series of lectures uh, about Mormon theology and about the basis for Mormon belief and what sets it apart. Uh, And during the aughts and teens, he, along with a few other theological laymen, lay out in a number of books and pamphlets a fully synthesized, modernized Mormon theology, which is the church that exists now. This is really the the creation of modern, uh, post-polygamy, post-prophetic, post-charismatic Mormon history. And in these descriptions, Talmadge explains that, for example, with polygamy, so polygamy is based on this notion of celestial marriage, a marriage that is transcends time and space. And Talmadge argues that just means that the marriage is eternal. It doesn't mean it necessarily has to be plural. So it's it's normalizing Mormonism uh, for for a mass audience. And the theology uh, that Talmadge and others promulgate is free real estate, the religion. It is America condensed into a transcendent theology. Uh, it truly is a 
Christian Scientology uh, at a point of human history when when faith in revealed religion still had mass persuasive power. It's a period that's dying, and in that last gasps, modern Mormonism is forged, which is essentially uh, an ideology of relentless and monomaniacal optimism. It is the American positivity compulsion turned into a story of creation. Uh, it is a religion without original sin in which all mankind will be saved because mankind is universally good and universally capable of achieving godhood. Forget capable of salvation. Salvation is a minimum. Everyone's getting saved. That's taken for granted. But humans have the capability, all of them, uh, through the application of will to pursuing virtue and self-improvement, literally take on the character of God. This is a religion that is able to cross that chasm between the eternal and the individual human, not by imagining uh, a bridge of salvation, but of denying that there is any distinction between the two. It is in that way fully materialized. Heaven is not a transcendent reunion with a force beyond our understanding. It is the perpetuation of our individual consciousness eternally as we apply principles and self-improvement to the process of literally building a universe. There's a term that Talmud uses that becomes one of the key phrases of Mormon theology, eternal progression. God didn't even make the universe out of nothing. He shaped it out of existent matter through his own will, as will all people who pursue a eternally progressive spiritual life, as in go to church, participate in church life, reflect on that life, and in so doing, bring yourself in accordance with the God within you that is already there. Sin is not, uh, in this context, original or, or an indelible stain. It is essentially just the consequence of failing to, live, failing to live up to your godly potential. And that's why God will never send anyone to hell, because he's mostly just disappointed. You could do so much better. If you're willing to accept mere salvation, okay, I guess, fine. But there are literally universes awaiting you if you are willing to try harder and aspire to more. It is a radically individualized theology. It, it is American individualism uh, sacralized. But this is the most important part. It is nestled in a framework of deep social reinforcement. If you have an entire church full of people who believe this way, then they and they participate in a church life that is as rigorous and as all-consuming as the structures of Mormonism. Being a member of a stake is a responsibility that puts things upon you and that spent that makes that leads you to spend your time with the church as opposed to making money with a little bit of time for the church, like everybody else in America. And making money becomes part of your life of the church because now that you have to have capitalism, you can at the very least 
Use your social network to make connections, to network in such a way to use capitalism towards your own collective social ends rather than the individual ends. And so even though everybody is looking towards turning themselves into God, since they're all doing it at the same time in the same way, by participating in the same social life, they're actually able to maintain that belief as opposed to everywhere outside of the, of the church where people are radically individualized, but in a desaturated spiritual environment where they don't spend that much time in church. They don't spend that much time with believers. They spend time among strangers, alienating themselves from each other and therefore being tossed by the seas of the market because all they can pursue is their own self-interest alone, as opposed to those within the church who are now able to pursue their own self-interest together because their self-interest is wedded to the church. Whereas outside the church, self-interest is wedded only to the self. It's that the same period that formal church behavioral doctrines, things to set Mormons apart from everyone else in America are reestablished. Now, Polygamy's out. That's the bridge too far. But how about no hot drinks or alcohol? How about no caffeine? How about that? That's kind of weird, but it's not weird enough for the fucking marshals to show up or for somebody to get a posse and burn down your church. This is when the word of wisdom is promulgated, which goes from, which takes some of the doctrines that during the Smith days the Smith and Young period had been mostly suggestions of best practices and turned them into formal church commandments, no hot drinks or alcohol, which replaces polygamy as the behavioral line between you and everybody else. It is a refusal to participate in a social ritual that allows you to maintain your solidarity. Now, of course, there's plenty of Mormons who drink and have hot drinks, they're large. They're known as Jack Mormons, and there's tons of them out west. Uh, they're Mormons who might, who have never been excommunicated from the church, and, and are still part of the social life of the church, but who don't really obey any of that uh, stuff. But once again, that liminal state is implied by any harsh demarcation. That's going to happen no matter what, and that's how it manifests uh, for the Mormons. Uh, so, how do you go about being a good person? Well. The good news is that the two big principles of Mormonism are that the universe is comprehensible and that people can act on their comprehension of the universe. And that is a reflection of the progressive moment that America was living through when uh, empirical observation, rational scientific management was taken to be the solution to uh, mankind's mounting crises. And faith in human progress became enshrined in America's civic religion and of course also becomes enshrined uh, in Mormonism, which is being reformed at this moment. That means that there is no division between science and religion, that any perceived misalignment between faith and scientific understanding of the universe is just a misunderstanding that will within time be unfolded because there is no contradiction between science and religion because we are all tasked with pursuing our self-improvement through rational observation of the world around us. So at this, by this, at this point, Utah is politically, now that it's 
been welcomed into the American partisan political structure, the political system basically flows with the wind. Uh, they vote for Roosevelt. They vote for Wilson. They vote for the Republicans in the twenties. And then when the great depression happens, they vote for FDR and Truman. Uh, and in Utah during the depression, a number of Mormons resurrect some of those mutual aid concepts from the days of, uh, since the days of consecration, uh, and start doing collective enterprises again and uh, use the church structure of stakes and bishops to distribute relief. But the Mormon leadership becomes deeply alienated from the New Deal for unsurprising reasons. They're now at the top of a uh, thriving capitalism inside Utah being carried out by Mormons, but with this new religious understanding undergirding it that allows them to participate in the market without feeling that their soul is being pulled out of their body because they have this social network to conduct capitalism within. They're not doing capitalism in the harsh, stark marketplace. They're doing it in the bosom of the church, and they're doing very well. If The leadership of the, of the church itself tends to be made up of very successful businessmen. And so their hostility to the New Deal is uh, pretty easy to understand. But it isn't until uh, after World War II, and specifically once the culture wars kick in the 60s, that Utah really becomes a reliably Republican state because they find themselves on the other end of pretty much all of the big uh, revolutionary cultural conflicts that emerge because their, uh, their identity is so tied up in a revealed Christian-inspired religion. And so by and after World War II, uh, the church enters, as America does, its Fordist era, when uh, the church goes about a process of standardizing uh, and simplifying, simplifying its administration, its doctrine, its curriculum for its missionaries in a process called correlation uh, that mirrors the organization of the U.S. economy around corporations that happens at the same period. It's a rationalization of the management of the church that leads to uh, the leadership of a guy named David McKay, who's the president of the, the Church of Latter-day Saints from 1951 to 1970 and is essentially the CEO of Mormonism. Uh, he is the CEO of Mormonism, Inc. He increases missionary uh, outreach to Americas with a new message. The, the church is wherever you are. They've given up the dream of Zion and an independent uh, sovereignty in Utah. And since now we're in a global capitalist market after World War II, it doesn't matter where people live. They can, they can participate in the church anywhere as long as you can set up the structures of the church for them to live within. And McKay presides over this process of the rationalization of the church, which means extinguishing the, the, the last embers of the, uh, the charismatic prophetic tradition within Mormonism, which today largely resides uh, in the splinters, the, the, the movements that have fallen off of mainstream Mormonism, uh, and which is accelerated as economic conditions have declined, of course. So McKay takes, turns the church into a smooth functioning machine with missionaries going around the world and helping set up uh, new stakes in new countries with 
uh, thriving Mormon media, Mormon uh, outreach programs. They create a nested series of organizations and committees and universities and nonprofit groups, all were and corporations, of course, businesses started and run by Mormons, all working together, all moving, all churning to direct tithes to a church structure that then increases the efficacy of the machine itself. So during these years, the church has turned into a finely tuned machine. Under McKay, there's a massive growth in the church. There were 400,000 Mormons around the turn of the, 19, turn of the 20th century. When McKay took power in 1951, there were 1.1 million. When he died in 1970, there were 2.8 million. In 1960, the first stake outside the United States was established in, appropriately enough, Manchester, where so many of those early British Mormon converts had been recruited. This is when McKay says Zion could be anywhere. And this is during the time, this is the time when Mormonism really gets integrated into uh, the, the fabric of America. Mormons start thriving in business and in government. Uh, George Romney, a descendant of the Mormons who fled to Mexico so they could keep being polygamists, became a chairman of GM and then governor of Michigan and a top-ranked presidential candidate in 1968 before he blew his candidacy by claiming that he had been brainwashed by generals about Vietnam. Uh, but his church affiliations basically never came up in the campaign. And so, fittingly enough, a lot of the uh, energy that would have gone in a previous generation into, in for, in, into insisting on some sort of doctrinal orthodoxy within the church gets directed into politics and into the vein of reactionary politics that is erupting at this same period. Because having been fully, accumul fully assimilated to capitalism and having subordinated capitalism to the project of the church, Mormons can found themselves more and more amenable broadly to the politics of the Republican Party and to reactionary politics in general. Now, of course, there's plenty of Mormons who don't agree with that, but since so many Mormons are successful in business during this period, it makes sense that more of them are likely to accept the reactionary framework of the post-war crisis. And a couple of figures who help shape Mormonism's response to the social breakdown of the 60s and 70s are Ezra Taft Benson and W. Cleon Skousen, a couple of great names. Ezra Taft Benson was agriculture secretary under Dwight Eisenhower, and then he spent the 60s shaping Mormon politics around strident culture war and rabid hostility to government interference in the economy. Now, this is going to be the same combination of views that will dominate evangelical religious revival in the 70s and 80s, but Benson was a visionary of it in the 50s and 60s. It is a moralistic libertarianism that was the dominant right strain until very recently, and it has held on to the Mormons more strongly than elsewhere uh, and, took on, uh, and took hold earlier basically because that combination of beliefs is at least theoretically possible under Mormonism, where church identity can plausibly withstand the alienating and the stabilizing forces of the market. So Benson becomes a uh, public and strident anti-communist. 
a person who uh, who sees civil rights and any kind of worker power basically as tantamount to communism. Uh, he eventually became church president in 1973, uh, and he held off the religious shit, or he held off the political stuff once he became church president, and he focused himself more on flooding the earth with books of Mormon and making sure that the Book of Mormon was distributed as widely as possible across the world. And the other guy, uh, W. Cleon Skousen, he was a John Birch Society fellow traveler who helped articulate the specific American populist libertarian nightmare cosmology that eventually got picked up by guys like Ron Paul and uh, Glenn Beck and is now the real deep political theology of QAnon, I would argue. And it's the idea that there is an unholy alliance between uh, finance capital and communism to destroy individual human liberty. Uh, he wrote a book called The Naked Communist about the, the real goals of communism. He wrote a book called The Naked Capitalist about how the Western merchant bankers had stood up communism in order to destroy individual liberty. He saw the Constitution as divinely inspired and therefore any attempt to uh, alter it as demonic. So this is uh, the theology of the modern right, where there is a native God-inspired capitalism, a, a, a free market, literally, where God's will reigns. And then there is a, a cabal, a, a secret group, Jews usually, who have used the machines of free government necessary to allow the market to reveal God's will to deform it and and to twist it away from freedom and that its tools are capitalism uh, and also the collectivizing spirit of communism and that the long-term goal is collectivization and that capitalism is antithetical to this process, which means that the finance capital that a Marxist might associate with capitalism is to uh, the Skousenite, and I think now uh, the right in general, that is not capitalism. That is Marxism, which is Judaism, which is the other, coming to smother uh, democracy, uh, Christ-inspired democracy. And when I say Skousen is one of the pr- the real progenitors of this, I'm not saying that he's the reason people believe this, just that he is articulating the only real response possible by someone who believes America is in any way godly. And that goes for Mormons and it goes for evangelicals. It goes for allegedly materialist libertarians. They all have elevated America to uh, a transcendent realm. And in so doing, they have inoculated themselves against any material critique of politics. So even though capitalism eats away at all social bonds, which is something that the early Mormons were very, very clear on and saw with their own eyes and tried to prevent, uh, by this point, Americans, even the Mormons, have largely forgotten how to see it because for them, the values of capitalism are, by, are the mechanisms by which God's will in the world is revealed. And so collectivist remedies to capitalism can only 
deny what God wants and impose what the devil wants, basically. It might never be thought of in these terms, but that is, that's the cosmology of American folk capitalism. And Skousen represented it. He also did help influence it because, for example, Glenn Beck's entire 912 project was inspired by Skousen's writings. And I think if you look especially at QAnon, their understanding of how capitalism works, how American politics work, who the villains and enemies are in the political economic menagerie, uh, it's all Skousen. Now, at this point, as I said, Mormonism is really being normalized into the mainstream of American culture. But once again, as time passes, uh, new areas of contradiction emerge. And by the 70s, the new polygamy for Mormons was the fact that they explicitly denied membership to black uh, people, which means, among other things, that they denied mem- uh, they de facto denied the attendance of black people to their universities like BYU. And in a post-civil rights era America, where formal regimes of segregation were becoming socially unacceptable, that too had to go. And so voila, there's another miraculous revelation that just so happens to accommodate Mormonism to the center of American politics and culture again. What a fucking coincidence. So Mormonism continues to grow. It grows internationally. And now uh, it's able to grow uh, in places like Africa uh, and it grows in Asia and it's, and the growth is powered by missionaries, which is every young man uh, in the Mormon church expected to perform two years of missionary work when they graduate high school. And you might've seen them in their starched white shirts and their ties holding the book of Mormon. You might've seen the book of Mormon. Even if this, Missionary work doesn't have the impact of actually converting people. It does have the impact of confirming young members of the church in their church hierarchies. It's part of a process of rising through ranks of priesthood that was established in the Utah days and that has a very powerful influence in keeping members within the flock. And that means, and the, and the fruits of that are that you know, there are 14, in 2010, there were 14 million members of the LDS church a little less than half of them in the United States. There are 100,000 Mormons in Nigeria, 125,000 in Japan, half a million in the Philippines. There's even a guy in England who claims that he's got a Book of Mormon that says that all of that shit happened in England, actually, which just flagrant copying from the from that blighted aisle. And it's a church where membership is reinforced through behavior. Uh, on a typical Sunday, a Mormon has three hours of ward meetings. They have a sacramental service with uh, sermons and hymns. There is a Lord's Supper. There's Sunday school for the kids, priesthood, quorums. The Relief Society, which is the woman's auxiliary, meets uh, one night a week for young for teenagers. There's young men's and women's activities. The ward officials have something like 20 hours a week of duties in addition to their their full-time other jobs because, again, there is no paid separate clergy within Mormonism. It is a fully lay lay church. It's able to sustain its powerful level of hierarchy 
because of its uh, deep social grooves. And that leaves us in the church's most recent phase, which once again reflects America's phase. Like America, Mormonism is in its MLM era, multi-level marketing. The end of the yellow brick road of financialization of the economy when pyramid schemes are the only roads of infinite growth, the thing that structured all of the dreams of free real estate and its attendant political and theological fantasies was based on. And while MLMs have sprouted up all over the country and are popular with many people, they are especially popular and especially successful in Utah. In Utah County alone, there are at least 15 major multi-level marketing companies that generate billions in revenue. It's the second biggest industry in Utah behind tourism. And as with everything else, Mormonism's ability to anticipate turns in American politics and the economy because of their self-compact social structure and ability to coordinate action through their hierarchy means that they're able to use that moment better than the rest of us. So while millions of people across the country try and fail to make money at MLMs, plenty of Mormons succeed. Of course, not all. There's plenty of Mormons who have been absolutely screwed by MLMs, and there's plenty of poverty and downward mobility in Utah in general. But compare them to, say, America's white evangelicals, who they are largely from the same social basis of. It's not a contest. And one of the big reasons for that is that the MLM structure of marketing to social networks actually works for Mormons because they have a social network. Americans take on the, the task of finding down lines and recruiting people into MLMs, but nobody knows anybody in this fucking country. Nobody has any friends. People have small families with, with relatively shallow family ties. Thanks to all of that social interaction and those big families, at this point, even without the polygamy, Mormons have a demographic engine in the form of their relentless desire to be fruitful and multiply. So you've got big families who know big families who are all parts of stakes together, who spend hours and hours a week together, which creates a dynamic where, where, where a multi-level marketer can find a network of downlines to work from much more easily than non-Mormons in this country, which is just the latest iteration of Mormonism being able to adapt to capitalism on its own terms. But of course, like consecration and the United Orders, they will eventually be ground down and their social solidarity will be that further much reduced. But they will have held out as a self-conscious social entity capable of real belonging uh, much longer than the rest of us. And all because one starry-eyed water dowser in upstate New York had a vision that told him that American Christianity would drag everyone to hell. And the Mormons have been outrunning hell ever since. And we'll see, I guess, all of us, how much longer they can make it. Goodbye. Well,